Heyo, and welcome to the College Student Success Podcast, a podcast where college students and faculty come together to talk about mental health, wellness, mentorship, and entrepreneurship. Together, we set and achieve goals for ourselves to get us where we want to be. I am your host, Derek Malinzak, and this is episode 107 of the podcast. And with this episode, we are in a new year. Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to 2019. Uh, Welcome to the upcoming spring semester, spring 2019. Ah, I can't believe we're here already. Um, So I uh, have an episode for you today, an interview that I uh, recorded last week at the end of uh, 2018 that I am super duper excited to bring you today. Uh, So I don't have a lot to say to lead into it because this is actually uh, good length of an interview. Uh, we had a lot to talk about. Uh, we touched on all of the aspects that uh, we hold near and dear to our heart here at the College Student Success Podcast. So I think you guys probably just want to like get to it right now, right? And hear what we got to talk about. So with that, uh, let us take it away. Uh, our guest today is Tara Criscuolo. Derek and Tara, take it away. All right, we are here today. I am very excited to bring you an interview. It's been a while, I feel like, since I've done an interview with you guys, so I have a good one for you today. Uh, her name is Tara Criscuolo, and she is a she works for an organization called the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And welcome to the show. Welcome to the College Student Success Podcast, Tara. Thank you, Derek. Thanks for having me. No problem. I'm really excited to talk to you today. I've gotten a little flavor of your story. Um, I met Tara uh, a couple of weeks, about a month ago, I'd say. Uh, She came and presented in my class. Uh, My class uh, is an introduction course to psychiatric rehabilitation. So we have a lot of guest speakers in that class. And um, so you came and you talked and it was the first time I had ever heard your story and I was sort of inspired to see if you'd be interested in having the the students, the listeners here. So thank you again. Um, So maybe if we could just start out a little bit about yourself, like how old you are, where you're at in the college. Oh, no, not in the college process. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I was looking at a wrong set of interview questions here. Um, So the way we're going to do this, uh, you know, you could do a little bit about yourself and where you're at now, but then we'll kind of get into your recovery story and I'll, you know, ask questions as you see fit, but you know, however you want to kind of start, just kind of describe yourself a little bit and then uh, you can get into it. Yeah. So I'm 27. I went to the college of New Jersey, graduated four years ago. Um, still live with my parents, figuring, figuring that next stage out. Um, I have four younger siblings who I'm, close with now. I was not when I was struggling with my mental health stuff. Um, But yeah, I'm still living at home and working full time, um, managing my stuff, trying to do some, tell my story on the side, reduce stigma, and we'll see where next steps take me. Yeah, great. Um, Do you want to talk just a little bit about how the, the program that you told your story with that I kind of heard you about, heard you through? So I was speaking for NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, in their In Our Own Voice program. And it's kind of just a a program where different people from 
different backgrounds and different struggles can tell their stories to reduce stigma and spread awareness and kind of just make us more real. Because <laughs> yeah. since so many people have struggled with mental health conditions, just making it more relatable and real. So other than classrooms, what other types of, of groups do you speak in front of for that program? I The most impactful ones for me that were um, not an audience I um, ever thought I'd be speaking to was caregivers of people with mental health conditions. So different, they're called family to family uh presentations, groups, I'm not sure what the exact name is. And it's, I'm speaking to parents or grandparents or whoever's taking care of someone struggling. Um, so it's, that's been different than what I normally experience and that I'm just telling my story on social to peers. Um, Cause I feel like I can provide different insights to try to help them help their kids and, and friends who are struggling. Yeah. And so I am slightly aware of that program. That's another NAMI program, I believe. Um, the family to family. I'm going to include some links in the show notes of today's episode for the National Alliance on Mental Illness if anyone is interested in learning more. Um, okay. So that's what you're doing these days. And we'll get into your job a little bit later because I'm interested to hear what you do there. But let's go way back. Let's start in the beginning. Um, where do you feel like kind of beginning this recovery story today? I'm thinking um, middle school. Cool. I, I don't, I'm not good with remembering specific ages, but I know that um, my first anxiety stuff started to present itself in middle school. Um, and I was, so I'm one of five and I'm the oldest and I was always the wimpy one, um, of us kids. And, or that's what I perceived myself to be. And my, my parents said I was lovingly, but you know, stung a little bit. Um, so I, you know, we leaned on my sister for the brave stuff instead of me. And, um, I remember having my first panic attack when I was, 14 I was I've played tennis for 20-ish years now so I've been playing for a long time and I was on um, in the finals of a tennis match and couldn't stop shaking or crying and had no idea what was happening because that had never happened before in tennis and it was not a good experience um, and afterward my mom said it was just hormones because um, I was a teenager now and so I kind of wrote it off as like oh okay this is what everyone deals with in sporting events and stuff when they're at this age um, and didn't realize until way later that that was not normal. Um, but yeah, so in, in high school, the, the anxiety was still there. It very much um, impacted my relationship with everything, with school, with uh, my expectations for myself in school and in tennis and just in general life, I had very high expectations for myself. Um, and I started experiencing depressive episodes and they would be all consuming because I would let them, I wouldn't feel my feelings and I would let stuff build, build up that bothered me until it kind of overflowed and I couldn't keep it down anymore. And it would, um, kind of take over me and I'd be crying in my room, locking the door, um, Mm -hmm. very much isolating and would, my uh, my way to deal with that was to just end the night to go to sleep and then it would be better in the morning 
so I wasn't dealing with it. I was just trying to like shuffle it along. Like, come on, we got to get back to being productive and stuff like, so, um, again, I thought that was, thought that was normal. I would joke about them with friends. Um, I started feeling in sophomore year, I started feeling self-conscious about my body for the first time. Started yo-yo diets. I changed my look to artsy so I could wear baggier clothing to hide myself. And artsy was a really loose term. It meant like flowy shirts and a scarf. And that was that. Um, but it was based in embarrassment and shame. And so the yo-yo dieting continued um, throughout the rest of high school into college. And I... I just went to, I live in Jersey now and I went to a school in Jersey, so I didn't go far. It was a little over an hour drive. Um, and I went early for, cause I was playing tennis in college. So I got there before moved in before other students and we had our preseason and, mm-hmm. um, and then everyone else moved in and classes started and et cetera. And I struggled with the transition. I, and I struggled in silence cause I was, comparing my insides to everyone's outsides and mm-hmm. everyone's outsides on social were that they were loving college and it was the best years, the best time of their life and freedom. And, but it did not feel that way for me at all. So you went straight from high school to college. Yeah. I didn't okay. take time off. Yeah. Um, and I imagine it was probably like the expectation all along. Like there wasn't any doubt you were going to college Absolutely. Yeah. I, I had in my head that you it was a bit of a failure if you had to take time off or if you didn't go. Mm-hmm. And so I I just went because that was what I was supposed to do. Yeah. No, I, I, I was the same way. You know, it was always just like the expectation since as, as early as I can remember having memories, you know, you're going mm-hmm. to college. And um, so I think that kind of like that's a, just this like undue pressure on on kids, you know, and in adolescence, it's mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't believe that anymore. <laughs> um, yeah. it's not for everybody. Um, and, and I talk, try to talk about it because there are college students listening right now that probably feel like, you know what, I don't really know if I, this is for me, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's sometimes a message that I, I give is just like, it's okay if it's not, you know? Um, and and I understand that pressure and can relate to it. So, mm-hmm. um, all right. So you go away, and 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 I guess having tennis as a focus is is good in a way because like, you know, I don't know. You, it seemed like you had a, a reason to be there, even if you were unsure, right. like career wise. What were you thinking for your career that early on? I I was. Uh, communications major from the beginning, but I had different minors mm-hmm. uh, throughout. And so I was just figuring it out. I wasn't yeah. sure. But yeah. tennis was great in that it automatically gave me a group of you know, women that I was around with mm-hmm. and could form friendships with. Yeah. Um, so that it helped me in that way. And it was a, a network for me to immediately be a part of. And, and you know, when you play a, a college sport, you get... Um, I don't, I don't know what the right word is, but not royalties. That's not right. You get like extra props. Mm -hmm. So I felt good about myself because I was playing college sport, um, even though I was miserable. Yeah. Um, You get little perks probably on campus Yeah, and and it's a valued social role. It's, it's a nice thing to be able to tell other people. Um, so yeah, great. 
So I um, started preseason, started playing, and I I didn't – I was very much struggling. I was crying all the time. And I didn't tell anyone. I was very much hiding it from my teammates. And um, I th- it was a few weeks in that we had an away match um, that my mom came to the match to support me because it was a bit closer to home. And um, I won the match, and it was exciting um, with – plenty of you know anxiety throughout of putting unnecessary pressure on myself but I won um and I remember when I went to the bathroom after um my mom came with me and I was drying my hands under the blow dryer and not planning on telling her that I was struggling but I kind of I just couldn't hold the tears back anymore they kind of overflowed and I just said like mom I'm struggling I'm not okay um and that was important in that it was the first time I voiced it that I was not okay, something was wrong. Um, unfortunately, it got worse before it got better, but I did have my mom on my on my side. Yeah. Um, and we started talking all the time and we would text throughout the day and I would call her most nights crying. Um, and it wasn't getting better, but I did still feel like I had someone I could turn to and tell. Mm-hmm. Um, she recommended that I see a counselor on campus. Um, and it, I, I did, I didn't have a good experience, but I also think that I, it, it, it was a man and I have only seen women since then. And I like seeing women cause I can, they can relate to me more, mm-hmm. but he was also, I guess, an intern. So he wasn't experienced and I just, I didn't, it didn't work out, but you know, now where I am, I know that not everyone, not every therapist or counselor will work out for everyone. So you got to, you know, not date around, but you got to try out different therapists and counselors. And I didn't have that concept at that time. So I just wrote off counseling, um, after that experience. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I pity, you know, I have a lot of empathy for people that have, you know, in the depths of, of struggling that they have to start that process. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. because I, that's like what's held me back from, from seeing any kind of getting any kind of counseling is like, I've gone a couple of times and both, you know, times it was just like, now nah, that, that, that person isn't for me, <laughs> you know? Right. And it, it was never, thankfully the things resolved themselves. Like I didn't require it, but it, it would be nice to have somebody, you know, to just, yeah. even if I didn't see them, regularly to just know like if things get really tough like I don't need to do that so like that's yeah a good thing just thinking about it maybe it's a good thing to do like when you're slightly I this is you know optimal but you know thinking about like wellness and recovery action plans rap plans or you know wellness plans mm-hmm. they're things you do when you when you're well you know when yes. to, to prepare for the inevitable hopefully not but yeah. If you're if you're new to recovery, the relapses is probably you know going to happen at some point. Um, you know, just to know. creating safety nets. Yeah. So exactly. I, I have this person I can go to yeah. if I need to. So, okay, but yeah, that's a, it's it's helpful that you you talk about that because that's a, probably a common first thing like first experience with counseling if they don't hit it off right away with the person mm-hmm. and they would think, Oh, this isn't for me instead of like, Oh, this was just the first person I tried. I got to keep right. trying. So, yeah. All right. So that wasn't good. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what happened next? <laughs> so I, I started um, trying to, I decided I was going to try to fix it 
on my own or at least try to get some control of my life because it felt very out of control. I was still doing well in classes and um, on the tennis team, but it it felt everything didn't feel in control. So I, Mm -hmm. um, I remember it was over winter break my uh, freshman year. I read two books and one was told me what not to eat and one told me what to eat. And then I, because of those books, I started implementing rules. I decided that I was going to get healthier. Um, if I couldn't, if I wasn't happy at college, I could at least like get healthy and make my body like positive. So I, I started implementing rules of certain things I wouldn't eat, um, cut out, uh, red meat and cheese and milk and, um, would could only have like one dessert a day and um started eating it it got worse and worse but started eating the same general foods for each um each meal and had to eat within specific time frames and it was all with good intentions it was all um you know i read somewhere that the body um needs food every three to four hours to be um to process it and digest it best and not before else you'll overload it and to also do smaller meals instead of like three big meals so in the in the spirit of trying to do good things for my body those became hardwired rules that I had to follow and it it ended up catapulting into orthorexia which is restriction of healthy foods so restricting the type of food instead of overall foods so I was came from good intentions and it very much ties into the stuff in our society with you know quote-unquote clean eating and and all that but it just snowballed for me because I I needed something to to ground me um so it wasn't about the food it was which I've learned eating disorders aren't about the food they're about they're a coping mechanism for Mm -hmm. other things that are going wrong in your life yeah so I call my eating disorder ed um because it's easier for me to differentiate myself. And, you know, there's this thing in my head that was, you know, had all these rules and, you know, now I can see that they're ridiculous and harmful. So it's, it's easier to be able to separate and and to dialogue, um, you know, healthy Tara versus Ed, if I need Mm -hmm. to. You know, I've had, uh, interviewed somebody else with an eating disorder, um, this woman, Kristen, and I believe you talked about it this way in, in your, in the classroom presentation, maybe I'm wrong, but and t- this woman, Kristen, that I interviewed does a podcast where she interviews other um, people that have eating disorders and they tell their stories and I've listened to her podcast and they all, everybody seems to describe the, the circumstances that are in place for somebody to develop an eating disorder as like this perfect storm. Um, like, you know, things coming together, you know, transition to college, being in a new environment, Mm -hmm. the underlying self-confidence issues leading Mm -hmm. up. Like, do you, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. That is exactly what they called it in the program I ended up going to, um, the perfect storm of triggers. And I've learned that it's environmental stuff, biological and psychological. So when like stuff ticks from those three columns, that's when an eating disorder will develop. So, you know, for me, it was um, biological stuff. So was what did it run in my family? And no one had, but 
later I found out that my sister also struggled with an eating disorder. I didn't know that at the time. Um, so it's in my family. And then psychological, I had these anxiety and depressive um, depression issues for a long time and was internalizing, internalized to being a wimp and um, had self-esteem issues and, and bad body image. And then environmental was the transition to college, which was the big thing, the big different thing that the kind major of swept it. trigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Everything else was sort of underlying and that was sort of what put it in motion. Put it over. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, that is it's it's remarkable how how everybody seems to describe it in the exact same way. Mm -hmm. Um okay, so the mental you're you're trying to control the mental health symptoms and now you've got this eating disorder. Yeah. <laughs> so now what's and going on for it, you? It took over my life before and without me realizing or or I guess consenting for it to, I, yeah. it, food either became good or bad. Um, I was very much bound by the rules I'd created my, for myself. I um, began working as a server. So I began working in the food industry and wouldn't allow myself to eat most of the food there. Um, I would be, there were times when I wasn't cleared to play tennis because my heart rate was too slow or my weight was too low. Um, but I would be on the, you know, doing cardio at the gym anyway, because um, I didn't think I was, nothing was wrong with me. Um, I was obsessed with food and that I would watch food shows all the time, like Cupcake Wars and Carlos Bakery. And now I have no interest in those shows just because I, I feed myself. So I don't need to get, you know, food from outside resources anymore. Mm -hmm. Um I did photography projects. I was a photography minor, so I did a couple of photography projects on the eating disorder without saying that that's what it was on. Um, I did a psych paper because I was a psych minor for a little. Um, so I did a psych paper on the relationship between perfectionist tendencies and anorexia and development of anorexia. And again, would not, you know, did not say that this was mm -hmm. me that I was writing about. Um, it was this, you know, this idea. Yeah. Who else um, would have that idea, though? You know, yeah. you think about it. Um, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, everyone, everyone praised me at first, and my parents praised me because I, I was losing weight. I was, um, I was controlling food for the first time, and I know my dad had had some issues with food, um, not major issues, and but he would tell me things here and there, like he would never eat ice cream because that was his, like that would that was too much for his body to handle. And he would, he worked out every day and um, just little things here and there. But my mom actually since told me that she and my dad had a conversation early on when they first had me that there was going to be no talk of dieting or anything in our house because they didn't, my mom didn't want um, any of the kids to struggle with stuff. And then mm -hmm. of course, you know, I end up in this full blown eating disorder anyway. But it's but probably yeah, everyone was praising me. Yeah, it's probably not enough. Thinking yeah. about it in, in retrospect, you know, that you know, just lim you know, avoiding the topic in the house is not is not going to you know shield you from those, those right. outside societal pressures. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's just so prevalent in, in everywhere you look. So. I can re respect your mom, your parents' intentions totally mm -hmm. because as a, I have a six-year-old, I try and do similar things. I, I definitely do. Um, but mm -hmm. I also recognize, like, you do your best, but 
when they're out there every time else but not in the house like yeah you can't control everything or even just you know on tv or whatever <laughs> so okay what's going on it's, it seems like it's getting worse now so it's getting worse yeah um, and the i guess the rock bottom for my my parents when i kind of realized that there was a problem was i ended up in the hospital unconscious after drinking too much at too low weight and on an empty stomach and so my mom um they called my parents at you know three in the morning the hospital and um drove down and and I, my mom and i were actually my mom brought it up recently because we were talking about um i think like mental health journeys on christmas and she said that you know when she answered when she was on the phone with the doctors they said that they had stabilized me and that was really hard for her to hear um so they drove up and um and i was fine i made it you know i made it out um but a few days later they when i was back out of the hospital back in school they met me for lunch at a panera and that was my my intervention um i was eating my heavily modified meal um and they told me that they were gonna um, stop financially supporting me um in college and everything if unless i went and started seeing a therapist so that was the Wake the turning point yeah. yeah and i wasn't remotely ready or or open to to getting better i didn't think i was bad enough i you know i i thought i was like i, I didn't think i was bad enough even though my hair was falling out and my nails were extremely brittle and i hadn't had my period in 2 years and but i you know, I was comparing again, my insides to other people's outsides and, and my, my, um, body image and body dysmorphia was messed up. So I couldn't see, I guess, mm -hmm. fully that, yeah, I was trying to be healthy, but I was killing myself by trying to be healthy. Yeah. So I started seeing this therapist, um, and love her today, but hated her in the beginning. And, because I just wasn't, I wasn't ready. I wasn't yeah. open-minded. They were forcing me to go. So I physically went, um, but I didn't mentally go. I didn't, you know, my heart wasn't in it. Um, I, they took me to see an eating disorder doctor at um, a hospital nearby. And I remember the first day she told us that um, one third of people with an eating disorder die, one third recover, and one third live with the eating disorder. So I thought I would, you know, quote unquote, successfully live with Ed forever. Um, even though like it would not be successful if I was living with an eating disorder for my whole life. Mm -hmm. And I hated her too. I thought I saw her as a threat. I saw everyone as a threat to the superpower that I had created. I was, I finally felt like I had control around food and of myself. Um, but so I, I saw everyone as they were just jealous. They were just trying to take this away from me. Um, I had finally figured it out and they were trying to ruin it. Um, so I very much had my like barriers up to everyone. So obviously therapy did not work <laughs> for be with me in that mindset. So they, my parents forced me to up to IOP, mm -hmm. which is intensive outpatient program at the same hospital. And um, it was two days a week. It was 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. maybe, or so that people who were still in school and high school and middle school could come. So I was at 
I was there with, there was a 13 year old at the table and I was 20. Mm. Um, and, and various ages in between. But mm-hmm. I remember on my first day, I had to, when you got in, you, you know, relinquished your cell phone and your stuff and you had to go in and you, we all ate a snack and then we would do different group therapies and then um, dinner later on. And this was the first time I was ever forced to not use behaviors at a table where there were aides literally sitting and not letting you use behaviors. So I had to eat a corn muffin and a yogurt and I lost my fucking shit. And I loved corn muffins growing up and like do now again. And I, I was sobbing. I was a 20 year old sobbing. Cause I had to eat a corn muffin and a yogurt. I remember as I was lifting, I, I went for the, um, corn muffin first because I saw it as not all dairy so a little less bad for me but I remember as I was lifting the fork to my mouth Ed was screaming to put it down in my head um and it you know I I just remember thinking how did I get here like I was everything was supposed to be perfect and under control and and I was in a hospital being watched to make sure I ate food that I (sighs) that I had liked growing up yeah, it just it's such a great example of how fucked up our minds become. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I can yeah. I can relate to this story so much. I'm in recovery for alcoholism and you know, when I when it when I finally fessed up to my my girlfriend at the time, now she's my wife, you know, and I was just like you know, I, I was into it. Like my heart was into it. And you said early on your wasn't, but like, I also mm-hmm. kind of had that little feeling like you did, like, I'm going to be the person that, you know, I need some time away, but I'm going to be the person that can eventually drink, you know, yeah. moderately socially and, and be okay with it. Mm-hmm. And I, it slowly crept back into my life after that initial, you know, coming mm-hmm. out and being in recovery you know it was never like it was um right. but it just crept back in and then i remember just one day sitting in my new like we just moved and like you know it was good in a sense because i was getting away from a lot of the old places you know i didn't right. have all those liquor stores you know and, and i found myself at a liquor store in the new town and then you know with with airplane bottles of vodka and i was just like how did I get back here from (laughs) from where I was like and it was all that you know thinking I was fucking special and Mm -hmm. you know I was going to be different and and that was like the final thing that I really needed to learn sent me back to AA it was like nope you're not special (laughs) um (laughs) you you have to live your life you know very differently than everyone else and it does you know and so I just it's totally different but everybody's you know the behaviors manifest in different ways, but the 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 feelings are so similar. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So, but you ate your corn muffin. <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> and um. well, uh, all right. So, is this the worst point? Did things get worse from here, or was this the road upward? Things at this point? did. They did get worse. Yeah. Um, I still wasn't in it. I wasn't, I wasn't ready. Um, I didn't, I knew that like my life wasn't normal and other people didn't live this way, but I still thought it was, 
it, it had become my identifier. It was who I am, was the person who controlled food and exercise and just had control of her physical body. And I didn't know who I was outside that anymore. So I was scared to, to give that up. Um, so I ended up, my parents upped me to PHP, so Partial Hospitalization Program. And that was over winter break my, I want to say, sophomore year. Um, yes. And it was just for, you know, in between the semester. So it was for five weeks. It was five or six days a week for eight hours. So like a, a work day or a school day. Um, and I wasn't, again, I wasn't there for myself. I was there because they were forcing me and holding money over my head. So I would, I would abide by, you know, the rules there, um, not mentally engage and not, um, put effort into anything, but I would eat the foods I was required to eat. And then as soon as I would leave, I would use behaviors again. I would yeah. go to the gym or follow my, my dinner rules. And, um, so it still, it wasn't, you know, working cause I wasn't, I wasn't trying. Yeah. Um, they ended up kicking me out, um, because I wasn't trying and they, the therapist there recommended that I go to residential and I laughed at her because I didn't think I was bad enough. Um, and so my parents let me stop treatment because they realized I wasn't going to get better until I was ready and that I was kind of not getting better to, to spite them because I was mad at them for trying to take this away from me. This And it was a coping mechanism for me that I I didn't know that at the time that that's what it was. But that's it was my identifier it was my coping mechanism. And it was threatened by my parents and, and these people that they were forcing me to see. Um. So I stopped treatment, went back to college. I was a, a junior, um, you know, the, the same, it was the same. It was the same depressive episodes and anxiety all the time. And, and living by these food rules, I would, I would, I was so, I was a slave to Ed. Um, I remember I would be sitting in my room counting down the minutes until I'd be allowed to eat the food that I'd put on a plate in front of me. Cause I was only allowed to eat certain times. And, um, you know, I had my friendships were I didn't have many friends because I I I wasn't present in my life um, and I had no relationship with my family at that point. And I don't I don't there was no specific turning point. But at some point in that semester, I was ready to to try. I was ready to get better. I just I realized that other people don't live this way. And and I got a I got to see if I can get out of it and see if I can try to feel, live a better life. Kind of, um, I didn't, I didn't want to do it for, I was scared, but I didn't want to, I didn't want it to be like this forever. And I was willing to just try mm -hmm. to see if I could make a change. So my, we, uh, my parents reached back out to that, the eating disorder doctor that I had first seen. And I had seen throughout, um, she was monitoring, you know, heart and weight and blood pressure and everything throughout. Um, and she recommended five residential places around the country. And three of them were in our insurance. And insurance was a whole other thing, dealing with treatment. Mm -hmm. But I'll get into that. Um, and so I called each of those three. And the one that was going to have a bed soon enough or soon was in Oregon. So I, that was where I was going to go. We prepped. I did the prep for leaving. There were different phone interviews and paperwork I had to fill out and insurance stuff that my parents had to file. Um, 
and I was we were just waiting for the semester to end and then I was gonna go over the summer so between uh, junior and senior year of college and then I had a I had originally thought I wanted to work in fashion so I had a which is you know a whole nother it was very much tied to ed but so I had to give up a, a fashion internship that I had gotten um, and very much felt like a failure and that that was the the summer that everyone had internships um, to hopefully get a job after they graduate. But I had to go to, you know, rehab for, for not being able to eat like a normal person. Mm-hmm. Um, so whatever I prepped, um, my, at that time, one of my tennis teammates and one of the few friends I had um, kind of went downhill in her own thing. And she'd always, I very much, I, identified with her and that we were both high achievers, um, came from similar families and backgrounds, both from Jersey, but different. I hadn't known her before college. She was a year older than me. Mm -hmm. Um, Same major, obviously played the same sport, just a lot of similarities. And she started having her own mental health issues and she had never struggled before. And they kind of escalated and came out of nowhere. And, you know, in hindsight, they're there are triggers for all or most mental health issues. But at the time I didn't know much at all Mm -hmm. about, I was just wrapped up in my own life. I didn't know anything to look out for. Um, But she kind of spiraled down and um, she ended up taking her life. And I, I hugged her the morning that she did. Um, I was going to be doing a, one of the eating disorder centered photography projects taking photos at her house later, um, other tennis teammates and said like, Oh, I'll see you. Like, I'll be at your house later. Like maybe I'll see you and hugged her. And and then she, we parted ways and I never saw her again. Um, and I guess the, the ed was good in that it, it kind of protected me from that pain, um, and that for suicide. And I ended up, dealing with it but I didn't deal with it then um I didn't even process it really I she was missing for a while and then they um found her body right at the end of the semester and so there was a funeral which I went to but I didn't even make it to her burial because Ed um needed forced me to use behaviors because it was it had been three hours and it was time to eat um and you know, it was one of my few and only friends being buried a five minute drive from my house. And I couldn't even make it there because my disorder, like, had to keep to a schedule. Um, so that was very shitty. And I'm still dealing with the, the guilt. Um, and part of the reason and a lot of the reason why I work where I do today is trying to make it up to her that I wasn't I wasn't there when she needed me um, and that I wasn't able to be a good friend to her in college because I was so wrapped up in my own shit that I wasn't present at all. Yeah. Wow. It was a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I can't even imagine. So how did things start to, how did things start to get better from there? So I, I went away to residential um, a few weeks later, and that was my first time being in treatment that I was kind of ready to try. And it was, I didn't talk about it much in when I was speaking to your class, so, so I'll touch on it a little bit. 
um, it very much felt like I was, so I was in a house with, there were 12 women and men can be there too. It just happened to be 12 women at that time. Um, and there were, you know, therapists and dietitians and people who were admin who just ha- like dealt with insurance and there was a chef and um, people who cleaned the house and it was a, a whole production. Um, and I was again out in Oregon and it felt like a combo between daycare and prison for, for adults. Um, but I, we needed it. We, I, I needed someone to force me to consistently use healthy behaviors and to not use eating disordered behaviors for an extended amount of time if I wanted them to become permanent in my life again. So mm-hmm. if I wanted to start living normally again, I needed this intervention, forced intervention. So I was, I was living there. I was, I was, uh, t- 21 at the time and you know I wasn't allowed to pee by myself I had to have an an aide had to come with me and I had to if I was alone in the room I had to count out loud so that she would know I wasn't using behaviors Um, we had to eat dinner together and they assumed that they had to assume that every single person used every single behavior so they had to nullify anything so even if you didn't struggle with a certain behavior you couldn't do it Mm-hmm. Um, anything that could be off just because they had to make sure because they didn't know whose eating disorders would be you know fucking with them and not telling them if that if the person was engaging if that makes sense yeah so and, I, and had, I also understand what you're saying about like needing that like constant repetition because you weren't getting mm-hmm. that you were saying you would go through the motions and you could fake it for a little bit and then as soon as you were by yourself you know it's back to yes. old behaviors but yes. I think it really, I mean, it makes sense in that your body becomes used to this way of living and you actually have to sort of train it to, to mm-hmm. live back the way you're, you're, you should be living. And some for some, it's the only way to do that is through that kind of intensive model where it's mm-hmm. like 24-hour. I'm sure it wasn't pleasant, but... No. You, you know. And, you know, looking back, I have such positive feelings towards it because it saved me. Yeah. But in the moment, it was hard and it I was felt so depressed being there and and being you know under this kind of supervision as an adult and it what what also got to me was there were people you had to be 18 year old 18 years old to be there that was the minimum age but there was no maximum age so there was at one point there was a woman who was in her 80s and she was at a treatment center because she couldn't she wasn't you know a able to function as a normal adult and you know her whole adulthood life had gone by and she was a slave to this this eating disorder and that kind of shook me that there were people in there who were so old there were people in there who had kids or who couldn't have kids or or were married or had um had you know any range of relationship problems because their eating disorder had stolen so much of their life from them so that was very much a a wake up call to me that I didn't want to be like this. I didn't want to have to come back, um, you know, when I was older to yep. still deal with this illness. Yeah. I can relate from my time in AA, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I, it wasn't like I, I put myself above, you know, anybody or, or said, you know, I had any r- more reason to, to try or whatever, but I look at everyone and I'm like, I, I just, it made me realize how, how much I had, you know, it's like, I yeah. have a, a my wife hasn't left me and all these, you know, stories about, you know, these people losing everything or like you're mm-hmm. saying, like people that are in their seventies and coming here. And I'm like, I don't want to be that, that, you know, yeah. I have so much more to, to do still. So, yeah. 
Okay. So I was there for five weeks, um, and then insurance cut out. And they had they had cut out earlier. My parents were wonderful in that they. So I have a great support system, and I learned in treatment that at residential that that's so important for sustained recovery because some people had terrible family situations who weren't remotely supportive of mm-hmm. them being in treatment, didn't think they had a problem, or didn't care if they did. So, you know, my parents were handling the finances and the in, and the insurance stuff for me and going to bat for me behind the scenes and not telling me what was going on because they just wanted me to focus on getting better. And so I insurance did cut out after five weeks. Um, and then I went to, um, it was back down to PHP, partial hospitalization program, still out in Oregon. So in the same, um, it was the same program, just a different building now, mm-hmm. different counselors, but the same you know, type of treatment. I was living in a, I guess it's like a halfway house because mm-hmm. it was a house for people who were in recovery for eating disorder. But I was the only one there at the time, which um, no one was happy about because, you know, the point of a halfway house is so that you can lean on each other and, yeah. and gain support. So I was the only one, but I was determined to, to make my recovery stick. So I, I was okay. And I would, I would call my mom for, to you know quote unquote sit with me when i was eating dinner alone at night um or i would facetime her and she would eat a snack so that i was eating with a buddy um and i was following my exercise plan you know the minimal plan that i was allowed and so i was doing what i had to do um and still in in treatment i I think it was six days a week it's five years ago now yeah um for you know the eight hours a day so it was i was there most of the time but i i was alone for for the first time in a while. Um, and I, I kind of like to refer to that time in my life and the fears following it as I was very much a fragile fuck and like anything could set me off, but I wasn't, it wasn't going to set me off to use behaviors. It was just going to set me off to just be crying. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it was, it was hard, but, but I, I did what I had to do and I was there for three weeks and then, um, went, came back to Jersey to, cause the semester was going to start. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, my, when I went back to college, you know, I told my tennis teammates where I'd been all summer and, um, and at, at that time and for many years after, I still felt like Ed was a failure. Like it was my one failure. I, something, I couldn't control this thing in my life. I had to go get help. I had to go to rehab for this thing. Um, even though it's, you know, not really called rehab, but, um, so I, I was crying when I was telling them like, I'm going to be out of practice cause I was, you know, away all summer and being babysat. Um, and, but I, I also, I knew that when I got back, I had to recruit allies to, um, to help me keep up this, all the healthy coping mechanisms and, and activities and stuff that I had learned, so when I got back, I taught, I had to train my family and friends. So I was home for actually, I'll backtrack. I was home for like two weeks, I think, before I went back to school. So um, I had to train my family and friends how to like support my recovery. So I, I had to, they had to adjust some language around me. They had to, there were no appearance compliments or comments at all. Um, Ed would just distort them if 
you know, if someone said that my skin looked good, Ed would say it was because I had eaten mostly vegan that day or, or hadn't eaten dessert that day or whatever. Um, and if someone said that I looked healthy, um, when I got back from treatment, Ed would say, that means they think you look fat. Um, so it was just no, no appearance comments. They were all off the table. And I asked people to not talk about food or exercising around me with um, relating to moral value. So no one was good if they ate a salad and bad if they ate, you know, ice cream. Mm-hmm. Um, no one was good if they went to the gym or bad if they didn't. Um, I just I couldn't have the the blaming and be around me, even if it wasn't about me. I, I just didn't I, I couldn't handle it being around me. Um, and I asked no one to shame themselves around me and like, no one was shaming me, but I asked, cause I have a good sports system, but I asked no one to, to shame their own bodies around me. Cause Ed would immediately turn it around to me. Like if, well, if they're this, then you are this. Mm-hmm. I, um, I also asked little language things. Like I asked, um, used to call like chips and, and stuff like that junk food. And, uh, my nutritionist tried to get me to get everyone to call them fun foods, but that was a little corny for me. <laughs> so we switched to like snack foods. Mm-hmm. So again, just removing like moral value. Yeah. So what was your senior year like compared to the the previous three then? It was absolutely very, very different um, in a in a great way, but I was still extremely fragile. Sure. Yeah. I did things like I needed to cover my mirrors when I got back to school um, because I I wasn't I I had gained the weight that I needed to to get healthy um, but I wasn't comfortable with myself. Mm-hmm. I was I was faking it until I I made it. Yeah. Um, so covered my mirrors. I had to I had to buy a new wardrobe because my clothes didn't fit anymore. So my mom went um, shopping with me one day and she, I would identify like a clothing style that I liked. Um, and then I would keep walking and she would grab that item in a few different sizes and duct tape, like cover the sizes with duct tape. And then I would go on and try them on for fit and not know what size I was trying on. And then I would identify ones that I liked and she would cut out the sizes before, um, I saw them like when we got home just to, so that I wasn't assigning value to myself for wearing for fitting into a certain thing. Um, I mean, that's, I a, remember, that's a great, sorry okay. to cut you off. I mean, that's just a, I mean, props to your support team because, you so know, so, so, not too many people would probably go through those lanes, but you know, your mom would, right? Um, yes. And it was wonderful. And it's just such a good idea too, like a smart idea, you know, to mm-hmm. do, you know, it's so simple, but it's probably, you know, meaningful. I mean, you chose to tell the story. So, um, but it's like those kind of things we love in psychiatric rehabilitation, you know, any kind of like mm-hmm. environmental modifications you can make to support the person in doing the things they need to do day to day, living on their own, mm-hmm. whatever, getting dressed, right? Um, yeah. And also optimizing their mental health. But like, you know, they don't have to do that, you know, th- these are like, I guess what I'm trying to say, these are natural like things you can do that are like just really support the person in the environment that they choose to be in. So right. I love it. And there, it's little, it's yeah. a little thing, but it went so far for me. Yeah, totally. And I don't need to cover up sizes when I shop anymore, but mm-hmm. I, 
I did for a while um, to, to feel solid and okay with myself. And, you know, so I can see progress now when I, when I shop, I don't, I don't have the panic and, mm-hmm. and, or assigning moral value when I'm trying on different sizes. Yeah. Wow. All right. So I want to speed up a little cause we've, we really spent a lot of time on that, but I'm, I'm glad we did. <laughs> no, it's, it's totally fine. But, um, I, I want to respect your time and all. So that's like the college years and I'm really, that's kind of what I wanted to focus on. Um, what do you want to tell anything between then and, and where you're at now to kind of like, you know, put a bow on the story and then we'll, I'll have a couple <laughs> questions about, you know, the job and stuff. Well, I think, um, what was so helpful for me was being transparent about my, about being honest with friends and family of what I needed from them. Um, and when I was struggling, um, and asking for help when I was struggling instead of internalizing it. Um, I also kept, I went back to therapy with my old therapist and, you know, was trying and my relationship with her dramatically improved and, um, have been on antidepressants. I was diagnosed for the first time at, in treatment. Actually, actually I was diagnosed for anxiety and not officially diagnosed for depression, but I know it's there. So I take anti. Um, or daily antidepressants and then as needed anxiety meds Mm -hmm. and kind of just it's being open about my issues has been the most helpful to me Um, and I need to practice like helpful behaviors and and mindfully practice them so I need to every day still so when I walk when I'm commuting in the city I need to not um, look at myself in every reflective mirror or uh, window or door that I pass so I can't body check all the time because like I, I know what I look like I don't need to look at myself in every single situation where I can mm-hmm. um, I need to practice positive self-talk so in the in the beginning I would sometimes dialogue with I would dialogue with Ed in you know my journal and and write out you know what Ed would say and then what um, you know positive healthy tarot would say and now if ed's saying stuff and he's still around but i just choose not to listen to him now so if um if he says something i can i can talk out loud i can look at myself in the mirror and and just like name things that i that i love about myself i've did, i've done that in the shower before when he was particularly loud um and about how i'm proud of myself and so it's intentionally engaging in positive behaviors um, something else that is, I know you'll appreciate, um, I, it, my most recent part of my journey has been eliminating alcohol from, uh, my life. Cause it was, it was a problem. Um, it wasn't to the same day to day problem as the eating disorder was. So mm-hmm. I never went to treatment for it, but it was consistently, I would consistently overdo it. Um, you know, blackouts once or twice a month for years and that's just not normal so i actually celebrated one year sober three days ago which is exciting wow congratulations Um, thank you i put a little one candle in in my lunch and blew it out (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean and it that's yeah it just shows the recovery journey you know i mean i talked about this on one podcast like we don't use the term recovered because of things like this i feel like um 
because it's like, you know, you could be ready for something. And then it's like, okay, I, I really haven't been ready to confront this issue before, but mm-hmm. I have all these other things in my life at an okay place now that, you know, maybe it is the right time, you know, and it kind of sounds like that's what happened or maybe there was Absolutely. some kind of wake up call, but wow. Okay. <clears throat> so yeah. So you got the holy trifecta there then. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the mental health issues, and then the, the the ed, and then the substance abuse. Um, so you mentioned a lot of your your coping strategies that you use nowadays. Um, who are, who are your biggest like who who are your biggest I guess mentors or or supports? You mentioned your mom, your therapist. Was there anybody else that was like kind of critical then, or more maybe now, as far as your support system? beyond those I it's my answer is going to be interesting I have worked so hard to cultivate a positive social media experience that Instagram is so helpful for me I follow so many body positive and ed recovery and self-love and and only positive accounts and I intentionally do that and don't follow any food accounts or exercise accounts so as I'm scrolling like right now my feed is just filled with um, the whole like fuck New Year's resolution diets, like you're good how you are, um, post after post, and it's being online is such a good experience. And I've, I still am in contact with all of the women that I was in treatment with. We're in um, like a Facebook group, and I'm I'm connected to them on Instagram. Um, I have I have one professor who I also he's the one person I guess I came out to quote unquote with having an ed in college. Um, I wrote about, I wrote in a paper and he was a communications professor. I wrote in a paper about, it was on media priming and how it had primed you to act differently in your life. So I talked about how, um, media had 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 an influence on the development of my eating disorder and just kind of how, like it wasn't in my, in my house where I would get the negative messages, but I would get it from out in the world. Um, and I wrote, um, and I first hand, when I handed in that paper, I had uh, paper clipped and another piece of paper to the top saying like, Hey professor, just letting you know, I've actually wrote about some deep stuff here, giving you a heads up. Um, I hope it's okay. Uh, and kind of just like would appreciate your, um, con- that you not share with other people. And since then he and I have, he's a very good friend of mine and we still get together um, for lunch now and then. And, um, he, I didn't have classes with him the final semester of college, but I would go and like just hang out with him in his office. And he helped me, um, through, you know, different anniversaries of my friend's suicide. So he's been a big influence and and we don't live by each other, but, and he doesn't fully know how to support me, but he's trying. So it's, it's kind of just the few people who, don't know how to support but they're trying and they're picking up my cues on how to support me yeah yeah that's great i mean that gives me i, I like hearing that story as a, as a, a faculty you know as, as a teacher um i've had i've had students like that you know just like ones i've had connections with and they've been normally ones you know that have you know shared intimate things usually recovery related because we tend to attract a lot of students in recovery to our program Right. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's this, like, sort of like, oh, you know, you have to be professional and, you know, no personal relationships. And then it's like, but 
you're also humans, you know, absolutely. I I definitely have those kinds of, you know, I've been become Facebook friends with them and, you know, talk to them outside of, you know, they've, they've graduated all by now, but it's like, you know, once that happens, I I definitely, it's, it's good to hear that, that, that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, so tell me a little bit about your job now. How, how did you fall into working for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention? So when I graduated, I very much didn't know what I wanted to, you know, quote unquote, do with my life. And there was so much pressure immediately to know what you wanted to do and to have a job lined up. And I still was working in the restaurant industry, um, had a very different relationship with food by then because I was a year into recovery. Um, But so I just worked full time at the restaurant industry until I was ready to kind of start applying. And I was figuring out what I wanted to do. Um, I mentioned earlier that I had thought I wanted to go into fashion, but that needed to change. That couldn't be, that wasn't going to support my recovery. So my, none of my internships worked for me anymore that I had had during college. So I started volunteering at another organization called do something.org, um, which is all about social change, getting young adults to engage in social change and was there, um, blind, and was volunteering there and ended up getting a fellowship and then an internship. But I had reached out a few months earlier to and blindly emailed someone who worked for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention um, and said it was a it was a cold email and said, like, hi, my name is Tara. I, you know, I, this is where I am in my life. I've graduated. I didn't talk about my eating disorder, but I did talk about the friend that I had lost in college to suicide. And so how I had you know, strong ties to this cause and that I didn't see any openings on the website that fit me, but I wanted to just get my name on her radar. Um, if she knew of anything coming up and she, she kept in contact with me and I interviewed for something. I didn't end up getting it, but then they brought me on part-time and it was in the loss and healing department, which was tough. So I worked, I was a part-time assistant in the loss and healing department while I was also interning at the other company. And then I was kind of going to go wherever offered me the job first. And um, the VP of communications and marketing kind of grabbed me at AFSP. And um, a few months in, I was part-time for three months. And um, so, yeah, my, my background um, at school was communications. I had a marketing minor, a photography minor. And so my you know, my skill set and knowledge base was in that field. And then I had also had the the heart ties to suicide prevention. So I, um, I ended up working in the comms department and it's the perfect job for me. I'm not going to stay there forever, but it's been the perfect first job. Um, I love what I'm doing. I get to, I, I get, so what I do is everything that leaves the organization that represents us goes through my boss and me um, because we're the only, and I guess the VP, there's three of us who are in the marketing space and whether it's, you know, brochures or flyers or um, event advertisements or like t-shirts and pins and buttons and wristbands. And um, so it's, it's, I get, I get to, I call it the, like the fun stuff that leaves the office and, and it's also it's the educational stuff and just making sure everything looks and, and feels the same and has the same hopeful messaging. And um, what has been the biggest 
benefit, I guess, of the job for me is that it, and I didn't expect this, it, it had helped, it has helped me become so much more comfortable being open about my issues. And I wouldn't even say that everyone, it's, it's definitely a much better environment there than, you know, the other places I've interned, but everyone, not everyone there was widely open wildly open with their own stuff like people would talk about it here and there and and people would openly say that like they had to leave early because they had to go to therapy and stuff but no one was you know telling their whole story left and right so I feel I somehow got to the place where I could do that and and I've helped push the boundaries a bit at my job um by doing that and it's I no longer cry when I talk about Ed um it's just it's helped me grow so much just working in marketing trying to reduce stigma for mental health has given me the confidence to try to reduce stigma of my own mental health journey if that makes sense it so makes sense and like this is like the best story you could have told like i mean just from like everything that i try and talk about on the podcast you know for college students that may feel either directionless in school or they have some sort of direction like it sounds like you did um but you know, it's a big field out there and you need to stand yeah. out. And like, how do you do that? And and the the, the things you talked about doing, like, you know, you, you started volunteering at an organization, the cold email, like, I love that mm-hmm. shit because like, that's the stuff that people do to, you know, to, to get jobs, you know, like mm-hmm. everybody can talk about an experience, you know, about getting a job and the way they got it was because they knew somebody who knew somebody, yes. or, you know. Or, you know, just that initial connection, like who, you know, who gets jobs through like, I don't even know, LinkedIn or wherever anymore. Like it just, it doesn't, I mean, that's a perfect example. And like the fact that you, you know, it's in the field that you were interested in and had the experience in and now, and then have the, the lived or personal experience and now have sort of leveraged that into a job that you really enjoy and represents mm-hmm. you well is like, what I hope for for all of the people that are listening, you know, um, mm-hmm. that's just like a perfect example of of what I'm like trying to kind of clue people into, like what 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 needs to happen, you know. It does, and it's not you can do all these things and it doesn't happen, but that doesn't, you know. Right. Sometimes that's just like the learning phase. It's like okay, that wasn't the right way, and to to keep trying. So, mm-hmm. thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Um, so. Anything as we sort of wrap up advice, um, the main listeners, uh, to people, you know, the people who'd be listening to this podcast would mainly be, you know, college students that were, you know, in your situation at one point, you know, struggling with, with mental health issues, but also the faculty that support them that are, you know, invested in, in this population, any sort of parting words or things that they could do to sort of better support themselves or, or the individuals, you know, if they're the, the faculty? I guess it's, well, first of all, it's okay not to be okay. Um, it's normal. Most, a lot of people deal with mental health stuff, mental health shit. So it's okay if, for anyone who's struggling. And I think that for, for those who are concerned about someone, um, it's good to ask just like, hey, how are you? How are you really? Um, have a, an actual honest conversation instead of just, you know, I'm good. How are you? Good. Actually ask them and listen and to 
to see if someone is struggling because you never have any idea what anyone's struggling with it. People can hide things so well um, and do hide things so well, especially on social media. So I guess my advice is just to, if you're concerned about someone, reach out and ask. And if you're struggling yourself, it's okay that you're struggling. And to, if you can also reach out for support because it's easier to share the burden with someone else. Yeah. Those are some, I think, great, a uh, great way to leave, uh, leave it. So thank you so much, Tara, for taking the time to come on, share your story. Um, it was, it was just a really great interview. I mean, there was so much here that, uh, I think the audience can take away from the, um, the mental health, you know, stuff, the recovery story, the wellness things that you do, you know, to help yourself stay well and, 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 and succeed and, and the, the stuff about, you know, landing your job and, and the supports that you've received. I mean, thank you so much for, for sharing all that. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Derek. And we are back. And, uh, wow. Um, the thing that just really stood out to me with that interview, um, was, you know, I just, I think a lot about like, you know, the energy of conversations and, and the flow of things and that interview more than I think any of the other ones I've ever done uh, stands out to me, um, uh, because it really had this like sort of climax or, or, you know, it, it, climax m- meaning it came to a head, um, not because it was a particularly great moment. It was actually, you know, probably the, the worst moment uh, when Tara's talking about losing her friend to suicide. And you just hear, like, kind of, we stopped talking for a few seconds there because, like, you know, I could tell she was, um, you know, had become a little bit emotional, and I was as well. And I, I honestly hadn't, didn't know exactly what to say. And then we kind of, you know, went from there. And then it, it sort of uh, finished, but it was just, um, I don't know, I just i just really want to thank Tara because uh, that was a really powerful interview, I thought, a lot was covered, and I hope you guys uh, got a lot of value out of it uh, in hearing about, you know, her story. It, it always, I don't know, it's great to hear stories because they help put into perspective, uh, you know, there's things that we can hear from that story and probably apply to our own lives. And it never feels like luxury, right? When you're hearing somebody else's story, it comes, you know, straight from the heart. It's honest. There's no fluff. You know, there's no, you know, oh, ulterior motive. It's just you're hearing what the person, you know, says um, in terms of the, the the experiences that have shaped their lives. So, again, thanks to Tara, uh, and I encourage you guys to check out the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And, um, you know, see what they got over there. I'm going to have uh, some links in the show notes for today's episode uh, talking about uh, NAMI and if I can find something on In Our Own Voice as well as AFSP. Um, So uh, I also got permission from Tara to include her Instagram account. She mentioned uh, getting a lot of positivity and um it's been a good resource for her so i want to include it for you guys as well that is a uh a medium i have not yet uh, broached i have not made it onto insta yet probably to many people's dismay 
so with that, want to again wish you guys all a happy new year. Uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen next episode. I still think I want to do an online learning episode. Uh, I'd never, I pro- didn't sort of promise that to you guys, but I talked about doing that because I went to a conference back in November. So I have some ideas from that conference that I wanted to share with you. So look for some more coming up in 2019 uh, as I become inspired and uh, as you guys you know, send me topics or reach out, want to tell your story, I would love to hear it. Um, so definitely reach out at College Student Success Podcast at gmail.com. Everybody have a great week, great month, great semester. I will be back. Take care. Peace.